Unity, Messy, Cessationist, Baptist, Charismatics. These are some of the keywords highlighted by a recent podcast interview from Francis Chan's latest Christian publication in a call for attention to church unity in the body of Christ. Admittedly, I made sure this entire podcast was fully drafted before reading his book, and after finishing both, to my surprise, there were some overlap. This episode is about church unity. On pace with Francis Chan, pastor and author, who was recently interviewed by Holy Post Podcast. Welcome to Over the Air Christian Podcast. First, I would like to outline what is at stake about church unity, so that we can get up to speed about this very important subject. And then, of course, what else for me to do but to get into the Bible with you? I'm not giving commentary for the Bible here. The Bible is to give diagnostic commentary into our collective church life. In three parts, I'm going to start with a big picture of the church world and then narrow it down. To biblical exhortation at the local church level. By God's grace, there's wisdom in the Bible we must unearth, examine, and then act on as churches with incessant prayers. Because getting to speak on cessationism at any length could have very different dynamic. But we're not there yet. Perhaps I'll start from the middle of the interview podcast by Holy Post. The question which came out was. What does unity look like? Is church unity missional or institutional? This, this was a very sharp question, because embedded in that question, it is really asking: Is unity doctrinal, or is unity ecclesial in terms of church practice? Since church institutions are built on doctrines, and mission of the church is identified by what they do or how they do it, practically speaking. So when we're asking if unity is institutional or missional, we're really asking about doctrines and practice. So we have doctrines and institutions, missions and practice. What kind of unity are we talking about? Case in point, in simpler terms, if I may try to illustrate here, come worship time at your church. Someone says, "Should we install a three-story music organ, or can we use the same kind of guitar and drums that a heavy metal band uses?" Someone responds, "Well, if you start using heavy metal instruments at church worship, maybe heavy metal bands will start listening to what you have to say about God and how you sing about God. Isn't that our mission to reach others with the gospel in a way that they can understand?" And then someone retorts, "To worship God, the music is to convey a certain tone in His message. That's the teaching of the church to demonstrate peace." So into the Bible, everyone goes, and you start talking about historical context, adaptation. Application, word study, exhortation to worship, glorifying God as the ultimate purpose and goal of the church. After everyone has had their say, end of the day, we will all meet each other in the middle, and let's just settle with a good old piano, with an electric keyboard. How about that? Everyone happy? <laughs> That's an abbreviated or comical illustration of doctrines, teaching of the church, and missional practice. Doctrines and missions affect. Every part of the church in so many ways. 
But the conversation that we're having now isn't about musical style during worship. This is about church unity between very large church denominations among multitudes of millions of worshipers of Jesus, namely involving Protestant evangelicals and charismatics, or even the Catholics as well. And in all of these places, there are doctrines involved, built right from the cornerstone of Christ from decades and centuries, and missional practice that pave ways to save souls, hundreds of thousands of born-again believers. Unity among all that in so many years, so many traditions, is not so simple at all. This conversation is a very big one, much bigger than a three-story musical organ could be. Francis Chan's interview on Holy Post reminded me of a pastor I listened to when I was uh, very young. This pastor in particular was uh, retiring at the time. He had a head of gray hair and wise well into his 80s. He was in the pulpit addressing a pastor's conference. I could never forget what he said. He said it like this. He said, I was born in a Baptist family, raised by a Baptist church, became a Baptist pastor. Even if I die in the body, I thought I would be a Baptist ghost. As I got older and I got to know other churches and traditions and the way they worship, the differences did not seem as persistent as I thought. I paraphrased here a little, but all in all, that's how he said it. The tone of humility in his voice was unmistakable in my ears, and I took his confession quite to heart. That was a long time ago. Can all of God's church come to doctrinal and missional unity? Perhaps that is the most perfect ideal. But if that kind of unity could be had by any means possible, wouldn't we have already had that a long time ago? Or did we, the church, collectively fail one another and made some mistakes that we have yet to regret, repent, and correct from? Or has the Lord found the time ripe for us now to come together, if by His Holy Spirit that He has now put in all His children's hearts, children that are truly His in Christ and by the Holy Spirit to unite together? There is the ideal, and then there is the reality. And I wonder if the ideal is any more or less relevant than what is presently real. And the reality is, just in time of the pandemic in a world dominated by secularism, church unity may simply occur for the sake of survival of the church. Numbers are down, attendance is down, offering and finance is down. I wonder if cross-denominational merges of small localized churches will simply become part of the evolutionary progression of church life, hence producing a unity of some sort, as in for churches to merge so that they can survive. In some cities and states, zoning laws are becoming another blockade to church expansion. In Canada, hemorrhaging faith gave a very alarming report about the next generation, next young generation leaving church and faith. That came out a decade ago, and we're still here. And I don't think Canada is alone in this line of data regarding religious engagement. In the larger secular North American mosaic, there's what the church culture calls the, the nuns and the duns, as in those who are already religious have no church affiliation, hence none. 
and the others who are done with the church, in a sense, altogether fed up with what the church is or what the church is supposed to become. And now, due to the global pandemic, being part of a church anywhere in the world just became a little more difficult or complicated. Everyone is forced into adapting life without traditional church attendance and community. Or there could be a complete reversal. Out of quarantine comes everyone turning into church for answers and rediscovery. Which, by the way, is the entirety of the message from the book of Exodus that this podcast started on. The goal of exiting quarantine is to worship God. And there's still church consumerism, another thing. The increasingly common behavior where churches are unable to retain consistent membership or attendance. Churchgoers rapidly consume church like a shopping for an experience or hopping around. Digital presentation of the church as a result of the pandemic has only made it even more complicated or enticing for church hopping behavior. Church in lockdown is like changing the channel. Church out of lockdown may see some of these residual practices. It would sound almost strange on paper, at least, to say church unity could be the silver bullet to cure church consumerism. Since if every church were unified and all the same, there would be no need for anyone to hop around or shop around. Since every church once unified, no matter which one you walk into, would be all too similar. Thus, discouraging church consumers' incentive, and if not for its benefits, church unity is first and foremost a matter of obedience to Scripture. Francis Chan outlined this in his book, and without a doubt, obedience to Scripture is blessed by God. There's a fairly broad range of different church denominations, even between evangelicals and charismatics. Even within those two circles alone, are many more branches and denominations and groups within. Some of which are very large groups, like the Baptist. Others are a little bit more refined. I want to start with a dilemma I first felt as a Bible college student、uh, serving in a handful of different churches. When I entered into ministry, I saw people leaving and entering churches, like consumerism. Perhaps it wasn't all bad. It would seem to me no believers can completely experience the fullness of Scripture in one particular church group alone. But what keeps us there is often the geographic or community factor. Aside from doctrinal convictions, wouldn't it be interesting to survey churchgoers on their rationale for membership between theological commitment or social community, whichever keeps a Christian at a particular church or moves them away? So, say we dial back to fifty to eighty years ago. If you want to be taught thoroughly on the economy of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, you have to be in a reformed church. If you want to be healed or be prayed for or visit a healing home, you would find that a vigorous focus in the Christian Missionary Alliance. If life was down on you to receive the prophetic word, you must be among the charismatics. Now you're ready to get baptized. Where else to turn to but the Baptists, of course?、Uh, exaggerated here to highlight my point. Bottom line is, specific type of ministries typically. Are barred within denominational doctrinal boundaries, since commonly those ministries practiced, built the foundations of those particular church movements, institutions. Practice built foundations of institutions of the church, 
and in turn, those churches are tied to local resources bracketed together by church membership. So within a person's life, you would experience the only kind of church ministry available to you at locations you find yourselves in before there was the internet. And that may loosely describe the life stories like that of Francis Chan and many others like him, the way he described he was taught and raised theologically by people who loved him as a community and as the Bible was taught. And you wouldn't experience or be taught about other ministries unless you hop around to other churches within your reach, within the reach of your travel distance. That's assuming you even get to hear about other churches to hop around for. And that there are other ministries not practiced at your own local denominational home group. Based on those factors, you would only stay in your doctrinal silo that way. And some needs have an affinity to certain denominational distinctives, sometimes as individuals, other times collectively, like during a war or pandemic, as a whole generation of millions together share the same need or a prompting from God. And so that's how they would find themselves in particularly in one church or another in the times or the places they are, they are in. But the whole gospel is for the whole person. And everyone in the whole wide world all mature very differently with different needs and different times of their lives and everyone at their own pace too. And before the evangelical race of the Great Commission that brought a local church into your neighborhood, this is the church world that we've inherited 50 to 80 years ago from a time before the internet, live streaming, or digital participation. You couldn't experience the fullness of the gospel of every kind of true Christian church based on those denominational distinctives. And that's no wonder how church division had unconsciously semi-bred a church-hopping consumerist generation inadvertently due to denominational separatists. Church-hopping thus become the byproduct of the type of church consumerism who to explore and experience other traditions. Although, of course, not all church consumerist behavior comes out of that type of need. Has this really been the case? It's up to qualified researchers to census that one. Granted, of course, since God is indeed alive and at work always, sometimes pockets of his work still exist in different denominational grounds, like a tongue speaker in a ultra-conservative reform group. Who knows? That could happen. I have known that to have happened plenty. But the problem is that's exactly where it stops, barred by institutional or practical commitments of a denominational church. Oftentimes, these works of God are not celebrated or given due praise to God and thereby the works of those ministry have no soil to grow on. So then, no wonder scripture remains true in the matters of faith. Those who have, more will be given by God. Those who has not, what they had will be taken away, like it says in Luke 19. The appropriate turn of leadership is not to quench any work of the Spirit that is in line with the Bible solely on the basis of traditional or institutional practice of the church, like a limitation. The appropriate turn of leadership is to prepare room for it to grow in, like new wineskin, which we will talk about in the next part. 50 to 80 years ago, church attendance would obviously be a lot more consistent based on those factors, without digital participation or the information highway based on geography, education standards, and local church resources available. 
But thanks to the internet, uh, podcasting, live streaming, replacing the television set for this generation, many confining boundaries are dissolving. There's now easier ways to find out more about other church sectors, groups, or types of ministries. Make straight the way of the Lord, so to speak, into saving souls. A post-pandemic church world is newly digital and here to stay for good. Every church was forced to adapt to online infrastructure. I don't imagine anything shutting down just because we recovered from the pandemic. By faith, I believe God had put every church that needed to be there just so the people can gather and worship accordingly and reap and harvest souls that glorify Jesus. And perhaps the time is ripe that each church is planted already, have matured, and begin to coordinate among different groups. I do wonder if uh, denominational unity can potentially resolve part of that consumerist behavior, that pattern among churchgoers, that or rather complicating it further. Where ministries or distinctives and emphases are no longer limited by denominational banners or membership each group carries, at which point you might start wondering why those banners had to exist in the first place. That would have been the idea of the Catholics unified, but then the Reformation happened. Unity with Pentecostal and Charismatics could be a step in the direction, possibly to redefine the meaning of a unified Catholic church, which would reverse the first split of the Protestant evangelicals. I know that God is always pleased with forgiveness and reconciliation done in the name of Jesus. By nature, that's the same type of unity and division we're talking about right now when it comes to evangelical and charismatics. What was established came first. At first, uh, for the sake of my uh, personal education and self-improvement, I had to wonder why there were so many church denominations divided. Catholics, Protestants, Pentecostal, Charismatics, Evangelicals, among which you have Coptic, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Christian Reform, Lutherans, Calvinists, Neo-Calvinists, Methodists, Anglican, Pietists, Quakers, Mennonite, Brethren, Anabaptists, Presbyterian. I couldn't call myself a Bible college graduate if I didn't at least know who everyone was in the room. But there were just so many rooms in my father's house. What do we talk about when we talk about unity? If I could continue with that analogy. In my father's house, there are many rooms. In one room, he had done an amazing work and he called them the Catholics, where the church fathers who were deeply dedicated to sacraments and doctrines in the way they express worship. In another room, he displayed the beauty of grace and gift of faith and he called them the evangelicals. In another room, he healed miraculously and he called them Christian Missionary Alliance. In another room, he taught the importance of purity and holiness, and he called them the Methodists. And on and on and on with many, many rooms, all in my father's house. Now the father had called all his children to meet each other gathered in one big grand hall, maybe right in the middle, so we can introduce ourselves to each other. And we have to learn to live with each other and love each other and unite right in the middle of the Father's house, even in the midst of all the many, many rooms. 
It's like introducing a newborn child to other children in the same very big family. Some parents listen to this remember very well what that's like introducing newborn child to other children in the family. And all the world from outside the father's house are invited as guests to meet his children, the church, in one magnificent grand hall. We better learn to love each other and get along, behave ourselves, and let's not start a fight to embarrass each other. All across history, from the mighty works and sound teaching, God had had many faithful, blood-bought children. By His gifting, one is good at this, and the other good at something different. Now we have to learn to work together, or play together, worship together, preach together. Denominational divisions and unity. And as anyone may know, either from life experience or the pages of the Old Testament, family can get messy. We learn together, grow together, all under God's grace. All of the movements I listed were born in a time where there were no internet or television, or had common folk that were educated enough to even read. But now, at least among the developed world, the picture is very different because of the technology available to us. The digital space in the information highway of the internet has a very rapid effect of allowing the world to observe the church, like an invitation to the grand hall of the father's house I just described. Very much in the same way I described how churchgoers consume religious experience over the media. In a post-pandemic world, when it comes to unity, the question isn't merely whether we can all minister differently in the same world, but whether we consciously make it a goal to unify in praise and worship. Like many rooms in the Father's house, but one day we must all come together too. What could church unity look like practically? It could be towns and cities that have churches of all different denominations, true and faithful, and they would be recognized not simply by denominational distinctives, but rather the works from God that comes by those gatherings. And all the believers who attend one church or another this week or the next, there would be no envy or competition in a shared network of ministers, attendants, even finance. All of that sounds very good, but in reality, it could never be so easy. That's not at all realistic right now, due to individual sets of bylaws, membership, doctrinal agreements, accountability structure, financial capacity, terms of exchange, and so much more. Unity may not be so simple, but even that utopian picture of unity looks an awful lot like a prelude to the end times, from a secular point of view, looking from outside the church. For the secularist, there's no point fighting the church if all the branches of church denominations were disagreeing amongst themselves anyway. There's division that can be seen: dissension, disagreement, petty rivalry for attendance or influential renown. But once the church have that utopian unity, all of the honest-to-God, blood-bought, born-again believers are united under every different denominational flag of the church, unified and grouped together. That's formidable, 
it's a lot easier to persecute that one whole group together that way. That's like saying if we want to usher the return of Jesus sooner, unify the church, then persecution will really come easily. That's when we arrive at the Revelation store. I don't imagine things will go the way I describe it, because if I could predict it, God's way over his church must be so much greater, more unfathomable, mysterious, possibly with much greater trials and tribulations that we can even imagine or dream of. And by faith alone, we will continue. So this was the big picture. In the next part, I'll get into the Bible.